instead of before the Lord's people. Well, whether it was one case or many, the Corinthians were fighting in the sight of the watching world. And, and just to be clear as we begin, these are not criminal matters. Maybe Christian A was suing Christian B over a broken business deal at the local magistrate's court. Maybe the newspaper headlines in Corinth reported a property dispute between, between one home group leader and another. And Paul couldn't conceal his shock when he hears about this. Verse 2, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? See, Paul has to pinch himself when he hears the rumours on the, on the rumour mill. Surely what I'm hearing isn't true. Surely it can't be. Because to take such trivial matters to court was a betrayal of the Corinthians' true identity. He says, sure, one day, somehow, you will join Christ in the final judgment. So surely you can deal with these minor matters now, amongst yourselves, instead of taking them to a Corinthian court presided over by unjust judges. Let's read on, verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? See, Corinth was a city full of worldly wisdom, and the Corinthians rather prided themselves on their wisdom too. They thought they were very wise. But Paul unceremoniously pricks the bubble of their supposed wisdom. Verse 5, is there nobody wise enough among you? to judge a dispute between believers. It's cutting sarcasm. He's basically saying to them, can't you see how stupid you're being? Don't you realise that airing your dirty linen in, in public is totally inconsistent with your character? How it undermines your holy witness? Just look back for a moment at verses 1 and 2. Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? You see, Lord's people, it is literally holy ones, sometimes translated saints. It's a word that gets to the very heart of a Christian's identity. A follower of Jesus is set apart by God and for God. We're so secure in our relationship with him that one day we will join Christ in judging the world. Perhaps you're someone who can put certain letters after your name. Letters that maybe indicate the sort of degree you've, you've got or, or where you studied or whether you're a member of a particular society. We rarely do it nowadays, do we? But occasionally in certain settings that can be helpful. See, if we're Christian people, it might be helpful to imagine every time we write our name, writing H-O-L-Y after our name. Because that is our true identity. Holy. We belong to Jesus. We are the Lord's people. And if we quarrel publicly, we undermine that most privileged status, our holy witness to the world. Now maybe there are a variety of ways in which we could apply this, but let's just think for a moment about our use of social media. Now it might be a dispute on our own private Facebook page with some people we know, or it may be a very public Twitter dispute, a Twitter storm between high-profile Christians or Christian organisations. 
Sadly, the latter seems to have happened in the aftermath of the report of the abuse committed by Jonathan Fletcher, the former vicar of Emmanuel Church in Wimbledon. And that tragic situation may have sprung straight into some of our minds as soon as we heard this reading. But let's be clear, this reading doesn't, certainly does not suggest that we don't take a case like that to an external organisation or even to the police. Remember, the issues in Corinth are not criminal. Paul says they are trivial matters. And so, of course, it is always right to investigate allegations of abuse or criminal wrongdoing and to do so within the law of the land. God's word does not condone any sort of cover-up. But the subsequent social media piling in the aftermath of the report published into the actions of Jonathan Fletcher, and I speak as someone who's only really seen it from a distance, would seem to be the sort of thing condemned here by Paul. Because whether it's small scale or large scale, public quarrelling undermines our holy witness. If one day we will judge angels, whatever that means, we must be careful before we start judging one another in public. So does what we need to say need saying? Should we say it now? Would we put it like this if we were there in person with our brother or sister? Could we say it privately instead of publicly? Do we know who else is listening in? Does the tone of our conversation reflect our identity as God's holy people? Will the content of it turn others off Christ or turn others towards him? See, social media definitely gives us more opportunity perhaps than ever before to quarrel in public. Some of us may use it a lot. Some of us, of course, may hardly use it. But the same kind of lessons must apply in other areas of life too. How do we speak about flashpoints in church life to our non-Christian friends? What do we say about churches, including those different to our own, at a dinner party, in the office, with our extended families? Do we ever whinge and whine? Do we ever air our dirty linen in public? If so, the Lord would ask us a searching question through these verses. Do you not know that you're acting out of character? That is not who you're supposed to be. See, public quarrelling and squabbling, even legal disputes between Christians, risks holding our witness below the waterline. Why will the world listen, listen to us if we live no differently to them? Why will they believe what we have to say about the life to come if we spend all our time arguing about the life we're living now? Well, Paul has begun to expose the mismatch between the Corinthians' identity and their behaviour. And he tells them, first of all, if we quarrel publicly, we undermine our holy witness. But as he examines these lawsuits and disputes, he spots another related way in which they're behaving out of character. And he addresses that in our second lesson. Secondly, if we're, if we're unwilling to be wronged, we undervalue our rightness in God's sight. If we're unwilling to be wronged, we undervalue our rightness in God's sight, verses 7 to 11. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. 
last month's scenes of great rejoicing greeted the news from the Royal Courts of Justice. The wrongful convictions of 39 former postmasters had been quashed. Some of them had paid fines, some of them had gone to prison, but it was the UK's largest ever miscarriage of justice in terms of numbers of people involved. And it had been put right. The claimants had won a great victory. And maybe that is the sort of victory the Corinthians were looking for as they took one another to court. Vindication against those who had wronged them. Like those postmasters, maybe they'd been cheated out of money. Maybe they'd had their reputations dragged through the mud. Well, if so, Paul's words must have stung. He says to them, you have been completely defeated already. The outcome of those court cases was totally irrelevant in Corinth because they had already lost in God's sight. They were living in the world as if the world was all that mattered. Their minds were untouched by the wisdom of the cross that he explained earlier on in this letter. They hadn't grasped the extraordinary grace of God. Verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now as we read that, those verses, we may feel that they, they come slightly out of the blue. We may be sitting here thinking, what is the connection between verses 9 to 11 and what has gone before? Because we thought that they were fighting over trivial matters. But these things don't seem very trivial at all. And why does Paul throw in a couple of verses that immediately sound at least one very loud alarm bell to our 21st century ears? Well, we'll come to that alarm bell in a moment. But just for a moment, notice the obvious connection between wrongdoers, verse 9, and be wronged or do wrong in verses 7 to 8. So this is not a random list of activities Paul doesn't really like. It is a catalogue of behaviours that wrong God himself. The idea that someone might wrong the Corinthians and not have to pay for it made their stomach turn. They came to church in the morning with a Bible under one arm and their grudges under the other. But to behave in such a way totally undervalued what God had done for them. That seems to be the point Paul is making in verses 9 to 11. I wonder if you remember, in July 2019, the Australian rugby player Israel Folau got into seriously hot water for tweeting the sentiments expressed in these verses. He was accused of homophobia and eventually had his professional contract terminated. But I suspect both Folau and his accusers misunderstood why Paul actually wrote these words. For a start, there is no hatred of gay people here. Paul is simply saying what the rest of God's word says, that homosexual activity is wrong in God's sight, just as wrong as all the other sins listed. In fact, Paul lists activities that break the second, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments. It is simply a graphic portrait of the non-Christian lifestyle, a lifestyle that would have been very familiar to first century Corinthians and a lifestyle that is no less familiar to us today. 
But I wonder also if Folau was also guilty of taking these ideas out of context, because Paul wasn't really addressing sinners out there in Corinth. And nor are his words really directly addressing non-Christians in our world today. Now, Paul writes these words to to lance the boil of self-obsession that is poisoning life in the Corinthian church. His words are a wake-up call to any church members who are holding onto these grudges in their hearts. Let's look at verse 11. That is what some of you were. That you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, the Corinthians' attitude suggested that they thought they had never been in the wrong with God. But Paul says, you had been in the wrong. Some of them were serial adulterers. Others practiced homosexual sex. Others regularly underpaid their taxes. Others drank far too much, frequently. Many of them used to worship at the local idol temples. Others made a habit of destroying other people's reputations. That is what they were like before they became Christians. See, our society grades our misdemeanors. It suggests that some are far more serious than others. And some of the wrongs listed by Paul here wouldn't even make it into a list of wrongdoing today. In fact, to suggest that something is, is morally wrong has become wrong in itself in our supposedly liberal culture. But we are all wrongdoers in God's sight. Sin is sin. As the Apostle John elsewhere says, sin is lawlessness. And if we've broken God's commandments, which we've all done, even in our hearts, as Jesus often said, we are by nature in the wrong with him. The doors to the kingdom of God were bolted in our faces. But just look at what God has done for you and me. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Over the winter, my friend Pascal at the street cubes in front of the shopping centre kindly arranged for our church car park, which he insists on calling the piazza, to be pressure washed. And the contractor arrived wearing what looked like a hazmat suit and proceeded to cover the ground with an industrial-smelling cleaning product. He hosed it down over the course of the day, and the results were absolutely stunning. Years and years of South Circular grime and chewing gum were washed away in a few hours. And that is the idea behind Paul's words. You were washed. Jesus' blood shed on the cross washed away the accumulated filth of sin. But unlike that contractor's industrial cleaning products, Jesus' blood cleanses our souls forever. Pascal hasn't been back over recently, but I'm sure he would be very disappointed to see quite a lot of tire marks accumulating on the piazza. But the stain of sin is permanently erased from God's sight. We were sanctified, made holy. We were justified, set right with God, vindicated in the presence of the supreme judge of the universe. Like those postmasters at the Royal Courts of Justice, we have won a great victory. Not because we were victims of a terrible miscarriage of justice, 
we were guilty in God's sight, deserving of judgment, deserving to be excluded from the kingdom of God. No, we've won a victory, not because of anything we've done, but because perfect justice was done on the cross. Jesus died for us. He suffered the terrible consequences that our wrongdoing deserved. He was wronged to make us right. Isn't that the brilliant, most brilliant news? Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you read through verses 9 to 10 and it is a little bit like looking in a mirror. And you read it and you think, that was me. Not all those things, but some of those things. Memories you can't erase. Consequences you can't alter. Shame you can't cover up. It is a little bit like looking in a mirror and you think some of that was me. And you think if the people sitting next to me could look into that mirror, I'm not sure I could ever look them in the eye again. But you see, God does not hold on to those memories. God can use those consequences for good. God has covered your shame with the blood of Jesus. And if God has so shown us the most wonderful grace, surely we can see how perverse it would be to be unwilling to be wronged by one another. Verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Or as Paul so famously puts it towards the end of this letter, love does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You see, again, please, let's not mishear what God is saying through his words. This is not a mandate to suck it up when people sin against us. It is not an excuse for a Christian in a position of power to trample over those beneath him or her without fear of consequences. It is not suggesting we cover up sin in the name of some twisted misapplication of the gospel. See, God is not in the business of whitewashing sins, but he is in the business of transforming sinners, transforming our hearts and minds and lives. See, God went, just consider the lengths God went to to make us right with himself. If he was prepared to do that, surely the Corinthians and you and I today can, can leave our grudges at the foot of the cross. I don't know what, where you feel the wrongs most committed against you. What feels very wrong to you might feel less wrong to someone else. We may be particularly sensitive towards some sort of behaviours, but barely notice others. The sensitivities of our friends may be entirely opposite to ours. Perhaps we weren't thanked for something we'd done. Maybe we were excluded from a conversation after church. Perhaps our views on a significant decision, we felt that they were ignored or not taken seriously enough. Someone maybe have said something offensive or insensitive. Were reasonable, unreasonable expectations put upon us? Did someone's, lack, did someone's communication lack honesty or kindness? Was it a far more serious wrong that has left lasting scars in our life? Well, it is never pleasant to be wronged. Wrong is wrong. And sadly, we will often sometimes wrong each other maybe unwittingly, sometimes even deliberately. But we must remember this. We were all wrongdoers. 
in God's sight. The doors of the kingdom of God were bolted in our faces, but as we remember shortly at the Lord's table, Jesus' blood has washed all our sin away. And so we are right with God, and so we can be willing to be wronged by each other and to let our grudges go. If not, we may need to be prepared to hear the same warning that the Corinthians needed to hear. If we are unwilling to be wronged, we undervalue our rightness in God's sight. As I mentioned uh, in the notices, I began to read this last week, Life Together, by Bonhoeffer. And in the first chapter, he says that the Christian community is a divine reality, not a human ideal. And he warns us that as soon as we impose our own dreams of perfection upon the church, we risk becoming the destroyers of it. And it seems to me that that is the trap the Corinthians were falling into. But once we realise that God is the architect and the builder of the church, not us, then we can gladly live in his house together. This is what Bonhoeffer says. Is not what he has given us enough? Brothers who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace. Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this any day, even the most difficult and distressing day? The very hour of disillusionment with my brother so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. You see, God has blessed us by making us his holy witnesses to the world. He's blessed us by making us right in his sight. And if we really value those wonderful blessings, our new identity as his justified saints, then we will learn more and more to live in character, not out of it. Even when we're inclined to quarrel and fight, even when we're wronged by brothers and sisters. So let's ask for God's grace not to quarrel publicly and so undermine our holy witness and let's pray his spirit would transform our hearts so that whenever we're wronged we may not forget the extraordinary new identity we have in christ jesus blood makes us right with god let us not live as if we undervalue that we're going to have a moment of quiet and then Stu cooks is going to come and lead us in our prayers